Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Thank you, Reuben. Good morning, all. Okay. Well, we're in First Peter, uh, week two. And um, before before I uh, start this morning, I, I did just want to share with you a little bit about my week. Um, yeah, just to be brief, synopsis, I've uh, been having a really hard time. Uh, it's, it's a little tricky for us, uh, parents of a, our older kid who, while 18, we only had her for four and a half years, and so I just, I really miss her, and so uh, in some ways it feels like it was too short, and so, yeah, just been getting real this week, and I had a really rough day this week. Sorry I canceled on you <laughs> and some of the others, but uh, yeah, so I just want to share that and um, yeah, just ask for your prayers and um, yeah, it's, uh, we've been working through that and trying to figure out that and talking it through with my counselor and stuff, so but yeah. All right, so last week we began our seven-week series in First Peter. This week we're looking at the first 12 verses, so... If you're not with us, I, last week I encourage you guys to take a look last week on Facebook, I believe is where we post our messages. Uh, we walk through the background of the letter, the author, and the likely purpose, uh, and, and the likely audience as well. But yeah, we summarize the purpose of First Peter overall, main purpose. It's for Peter to encourage his hearers to remember. Remember what God has done through Jesus, who that makes you now in Christ, and the hope that that ought to give us to endure and persist in the midst of in the midst of social ostracization. Remember, that's the key theme that we're going to be going over, and there's quite a few things we're going to remember. But lastly, we read the letter in its entirety, the way it was supposed to be read. Uh, it's called a circular letter. We also talked about it being a di- diaspora letter, but it's called a circular letter as well. It was not intended to one church like Galatia. But it was written by Peter to a bunch of people. So it would have came to the church in Dover one Sunday. And I would have read it. And then I would have, the preacher would have expounded on it. And then it goes on to the next one. And they read it all. And then they clarify anything. And so on. That was, that was what it was. Because believe it or not, we didn't have books. Most people didn't know how to read. Uh, there was one scroll that went around. Often in the early church, you only had maybe one piece of writing from the New Testament. I don't know if that humbles us on how much we take for granted that we have all 66 pieces of writings that we consider to be Christian scripture. But so that's what that was. They read it all, and then it'd be passed around. So last week we set the table, and this week we're going to dive into the first course. So in today's passage, the main point of today, remember our living hope. Specifically, we're going to remember four things about our hope. Uh, Remember the foundation of our hope. Remember the assurance of our hope. Remember... Uh, the benefits of our hope, and remember the privilege of our hope. So let's start in verse 1, and we're just going to break it down bit by bit. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Notice first off that Peter doesn't address the, the Jesus followers there based on their nationality, their ethnicity, where they live, their work, their class, any sort of socioeconomic or so, social identity that often today we so often identify and put before us as adjectives and sometimes we make it the noun, right? Rather than American Christian, we make it a Christian American. That we are American first, that Christian second. No. Arguably, I'd tell you, even get rid of that adjective. You're a Christian first, if you're going to revert to one, if you're in Christ. He reverts, he's reminding them who they are right away from the beginning. They, he doesn't address them based on their worldly identities, but based on their identity in Jesus and their corresponding allegiance to him. Three key phrases stick out to me as I, as I read this. Exiles, one. Exiles to the exiles. Let's look at that. So these people, they're scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They're spread about, they're, they're minorities, likely ethnically, but most assuredly socially. These people stand out. They have just a different way of life. They have different values, often contrary to the community. Um, it's interesting for me as an outsider coming to this area where, like, Christianese is just kind of the language. Um, there's Christian music played in your stores and coffee shops. What is that? Uh, I, I'm coming from a world where doctor's offices play hip-hop, and, and, and uh, F-word is just common, uh, N-word. All these different words are just, that's just normal. There is no PG anything. Uh, the, the Christian values are embedded here. We kind of blend in. It's kind of hard to stand out here in a Christianese culture, whereas where we're coming from, it, it, it was very much like, oh, you're different. You guys are married? Oh, you're different. Uh, you, you guys did this? You're different. That's weird. Tell me about that. It's kind of hard for us to do that. In, we're, we're in a different culture than what Peter's audience is. So we need to bridge that. We need to do work because we can't read this directly and relate directly because we're in a Christianized culture here in Tuscarawas County, specifically Dover, Philly, all that. So they're exiles. They're cast out. The way they live, the way they work, the way they relate to one another and marry, engage, or withhold from sexual behavior, engage in national politics. They're, they're so different than the world. So different. They're outcasts in more ways than we can understand. I. Howard Marshall wrote, thus their actual way of life in a non-Christian and often hostile world symbolized their citizenship in God's kingdom. Think of terms like stranger, foreigner, refugee, alien, undocumented. Think that. He's saying that's you guys. And both in a real sense, but also in a supernatural sense. What does that mean for us? Uh, the next word, chosen. That's in the NRSV or the NLT. Some of you guys have NIV or ESV. It'll say elect. These are scary words sometimes where we're like, oh no, do we have free will? We can do that another time. But New Testament scholar Scott McKnight, he defines the two. To be elect means to receive God's grace. This benefit is the result of God's initiative, not ours. Think of Ephesians 2, 8, where, you know, God 
chose you for this, and it was not your own doing that you, no man or no human may boast, but it was all in Christ. So it's not our initiative, it's his. In other words, God has called us to his love and grace. He has prompted our faith through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and he claims our allegiance. To be one of God's elect is a source of joy and comfort, for we know God's will cannot be thwarted, and of exhortation and demand, for we know God is working in us to enable us to do his will. So this word chosen or elect directly ties the audience to their, the Hebrew history rooted all the way back to Father Abraham. These words, it, it would ring true because these are words that they've, the Hebrew history has been told this for years by God and by their forefathers, recounting the redemptive history they have. And so he's rooting them as Jesus followers in that history. And then the last word, destined by God, or phrase, destined by God. Notice, it is God the Father who initiates the salvation of the elect. It's the Spirit of God who sets apart or consecrates the elect. It, he, he separates it. He sets it up. He gets it ready. For what? For the sake of the obedience to Jesus that the elect is set apart for. We see here how the, tr the triune God works together in our salvation and ultimately in us glorifying God. Those are ways, it's a cool little passage where the Trinity was all but said but not said. At this point in the early church, they weren't sure about the Trinity when this was written. And so this is pretty cool that um, we don't actually, we don't have a record, I should say that. But this passage right here along with Matthew 28 shows us the different roles of the Godhead. So who they are to Peter is based primarily on who God has made them in Jesus. But Peter continues in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So notice that there's this new nature given to us when we begin believing in and following Jesus. It's rewiring us from the core. Um, think about this. I, I, what, what came to mind for me is um, about a year ago, I had to do quite a few elimination diets as I was trying to figure out what was wrong with my body because I had some too much TMI. I'm not going to give you much on that. Uh, it, it just wasn't going well. Um, and so uh, I had to do an elimination diet. I had to fast. I had to, um, I had to do a, yeah, a fast, I had to do a juice cleanse, things of that sort to figure out for months what is going on with my body. I had to reset my body is the way my doctor said it because it wasn't, it wasn't functioning well based on my diet. And similarly, when we become in Christ, God, the Holy Spirit is resetting us back to the way we were made to be when we were first made as image bearers of him. He's restoring the broken image of God that is in us. Think image. When I think image, I think of a mirror. And think of just a full mirror in front of you. And we're, when we were made in God's image, God is the figure, and we're the figure in the mirror. We are not God, but we reflect God. And that's what we were to do in all of creation. We were to reflect God, his goodness, his glory, his grace. We were to steward and take care. Believe it or not, we were supposed to be the hippies taking care of the world. Because it's God's world. I don't know about you, when my dad asked me to take care of something for him and hold on to one of his things, I take care of it. I don't say, oh, my dad will buy another one. Right? 
how wrong that is some of the church has taken it no we're supposed to be stewards of our of our god's stuff be it his universe and our bodies and everything in between and so we're called to reflect it but when sin happened sin punches the mirror and it cracks the image it distorts the image that we were made in and so you still see there there is sometimes a semblance of the image of god in us that's why there is sometimes we do some good things but scripture also tells us that even in that they're rooted in cracked uh, reasoning and so our motivations are often rooted in selfishness it's that cracked image and so what jesus is doing what the spirit is doing is he's putting back that mirror together he's picking up even pieces off the floor he's gluing it together and he's and he's helping wipe away the cracks that's the process of being sanctifiers of, of being remade in christ it changes the core of who we are so if when converted we're changed then what does that actually imply for us that we need to be changed right and this this goes directly in the face of western culture's worldview namely that there's no need for salvation uh that that people are generally good people you know they're, they're good people i mean they may mess up from time to time but every you know they're a good person and that all religions and creeds and ways of thinking ultimately lead to God and self-actualization or something in between. And, that, and that's just not the case if you're in Christ. Our worldview is different. And actually, if we really got down to it, most religions don't believe that either. Uh, there's this illustration. I don't know who it's from, but I read it in Timothy Keller's Reason for God uh, that illustrates this point. This worldview that always lead to God or there's no one right way is like, say, three or four blind people coming up to an elephant. And each of them are coming up, touching the elephant, and trying to describe what the elephant looks like. And so one goes up to the front leg, and they're, you know, they describe it, and it feels a certain way. And then one goes up to the trunk, and they're like, oh, it's kind of flappy like this. And one's got the ear, and they describe it totally different. And elephant's like this, and one goes up to the tail. It's like, no, it's, it's kind of got fur on the end, it wiggles, it's thin. All different descriptions of what an elephant is. And so there's a worldview that says, and common today in the West, is that that's what religions are. Everyone is trying to describe what the elephant is, but no one actually sees the whole elephant. The problem with this illustration is that it presupposes that the person who is telling all us people who have religious views that, hey, I can see the whole picture of the elephant. You can't. I'm able to tell you Christians that you're talking about the tail. I'm able to tell you Jews that you're talking about the foot. I'm able to tell you Islam or Muslims, you're talking about the trunk and so on. And so that's the problem with, it's called relativism, it's called uh, pluralism, what it, call it what you will, where it doesn't actually make logical sense at the end of the day. It sounds nice, it sounds um, accepting and welcoming. Uh, but in reality, our worldviews, they collide. And so we are not meant to go lord that over people, but instead graciously, as we learn here that this is God's work in us, we didn't choose that. God worked in us, so we too ought to graciously bring that to other people. Not boasting, like, hey, you're dumb, or anything like that, but no, no, like, this is, this is our living hope. So if a new birth, what does that imply? That we're in need of new life, right? Apart from, apart from Jesus. And if we have it, 
because of the resurrection, or, and we have it because of the resurrection of Jesus. And this is one of the main reasons the Holy Spirit helped me come to grips with, with faith in Jesus and, and me thinking that it's logical and, and uh, basically understanding more and more about the historicity of the likely bodily resurrection of Jesus. Uh, that was one of the big things that helped me believe in and follow Jesus. Uh, excuse me, this is ridiculously hot. Okay. Um, yeah, so for me, believing in my living hope really became alive, if you will, in understanding and believing in and seeing the reasons to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That it wasn't just some myth, that it wasn't a mistake, and it wasn't a theory, but there's really great logical evidence, conclusion, uh, reasons to believe that the man Jesus Christ was God, resurrected nearly 2,000 years ago. If you are in Jesus, your hope is founded upon that solid rock, a God who did not let death defeat him, nor hold its grip over us. And no, our God, our hope is in a God who robbed death, sin, and our enemy of their power through conquering it in Jesus. We are more than conquerors in Christ. Great pick. <laughs> that worked. This is the foundation of our hope as Jesus followers. And why did God do this? Uh, I often quote N.T. Wright, so here's another one. This is God's purpose, to set people aside from, from other uses so that they can be signposts to this new reality, this new world. The new world has, in fact, already come into being through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus coming, his birth nearly 2,000 years ago, was heaven beginning to invade earth, the kingdom of heaven beginning here. Jesus saying the kingdom is here, but it's not yet fully realized. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but it has not fully been consecrated. Through that sacrificial death on the one hand and the indwelling of God's spirit on the other, God has set people apart to be living signals of this new world, this new reality. They are therefore to be holy, both in the technical sense that God has set them apart for this purpose and in the practical sense that their actual lives have been transformed. The way they behave now reflects God's desire for his human creatures. And that, however daunting and unlikely it seems, is who we are as Christians. Uh, another commentator said, For Peter, the resurrection of Jesus is not only a doctrine to be believed, but a reality to be experienced and internalized as our living hope. Lastly, uh, the new creation has already been launched, and Messiah people must learn how to live within the new world. They are already in the new age. Equally, the final new creation is yet to come, and their behavior must look ahead to and live in accordance with something which is not yet a present reality. This is what we call, in theological terms, the already not yet. It's the overlap of the ages. There's an illustration, and I, I, I could have sworn it was from C.S. Lewis. Um, I'm going to half attribute it to him, but I couldn't find it in a book last night or on Google. And so, um, but I'm going to share it with you anyways, and whoever this is, well, it's not mine. Um, the illustration being that uh, in World War II, when the Nazis surrendered, 
the war was over. World War II was finished. However, there were still many battles that were fought weeks and months later because the news had to get delivered around. They couldn't just go on Twitter, believe it or not, or uh, check out Facebook or anything to see that the war's over. No, messengers had to get there. So the war was over, but it was not yet fully realized. And similarly, as Colossians, as Paul said in Colossians, death has been defeated. The devil's been defeated. He's been disarmed. He will be thrown in the fire, but he has no power over Christians' salvation. Sin has been conquered if you're in Christ. The war is over because Christ is alive and his spirit is now dwelling in us if we're in Christ. We're in the overlap where the message has to get out. There's still battles being fought, right? I think we're all walking in dealing with them. But the, the message has to get out. That war is over. I think of that John Lennon sign, but he got the context wrong, right? War is over. Second point, remember the assurance of our hope. That was the long one, just so, just to help you be like, oh no, there's three more of those. Uh, remember the assurance of our hope. Verse 4 and 5. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for his salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, the word for protected here in Greek is a military term. No matter how protected you think or desire to physically or emotionally feel here on earth, in your home or your community or your city or, or country, whatever that may be, nothing compares to the protection over you who are in Christ. Therefore, it's unnecessary as, as hard as it is, to fear, hate, resist, or even destroy our enemies. That's why we, in particular, of the uh, Anabaptist heritage, are people of peace and non-resistance. Because our Jesus was, people, was a person of peace and non-resistance. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Where are you placing your hope? Where are you placing your treasure? Where are you seeking assurance? Whether it be, yeah, physically, physical safety is often a big one. Sometimes job security, relational security. Future security students, you guys might, especially college people, might be like, I'm trying to get a good job because who knows what's going to happen with the economy if COVID keeps going or anything like that. Man, what are you seeking your assurance in? Maybe is it in your community or your political affiliations? Uh, is it in having caffeine, caffeinated coffee versus decaf coffee? Um, where are you perhaps, sorry, I'm joking. I wrote that in as he said it. Uh, is it, no, but all jokes aside, where are you perhaps storing up for yourselves treasures on earth? My boss, uh, I, you know, coming from Southern California, my first boss, uh, you know, very, um, trendy area, you know, you, you, all the kids are all about style and fashion and the young adults, and so my, my old boss, when he was a college pastor, he would tell us, you know, you know, your looks can only get you so far. At some point, it's, it, the ship's going to go down. He would say, you can nip it, tuck it, lipo suck it, but the ship's going down. 
Uh, and that's what uh, my first boss, Sabo, would say. And uh, it, was, it was always great. Um, but no, it's true. I mean, we take care of these things, yes, like I said. But at some point, also, they're not supposed to be our final hope. Point three, remember the benefits of our hope. Looking at verse six, in this, you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy, for you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. According to New Testament scholar Craig Keener, he said God was sovereign over testings in the Old Testament, but his purpose, both in the Old Testament and in Judaism, was to strengthen the commitment of those who were being tested. So when, he, when Peter's referring to him it, that their faith is being tested, it, the intention is to be strengthened, like that of fire being purified, or gold being purified in fire. Yes, sometimes sufferings could be also due to discipline, to bring about repentance, um, teenagers. Uh, no, all of us, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> but also, sometimes it's punishment to fulfill justice. Sometimes God delivers us over to a punishment whether it be individually or a people group or an entire nation. Looking at verse 89, we can have joy instead of grief in testing since we know testing's purpose. As hard as it is, as difficult as it is, as much as the dark doesn't seem to lift, we have to hold on to the hope. We, we have to remember our living hope in Jesus, that Jesus is not dead, but he's alive and as the earth was dark and dim on that Easter weekend, uh, so bright it was that Easter Sunday morning. And so for us, as dark as it may seem, even for our own lives at times, and sometimes periods, man, the Israelites were in the desert for 40 years, man. Sometimes I'm like, man, it's been a week. Um, <laughs> or sometimes guys, I remember being in high school, like, she didn't text me back in like two days. What? It's two days, 40 years, and Moses didn't even get in. He died right before he, he got to the finish line. Sometimes the testing is the journey. The testing is the point, the purification in that testing. Last point, remember the privilege of our hope. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, Peter writes, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours made careful search and inquiry inquiring about the person or time that the Spirit of Christ within them indicated when it testified in advance to the sufferings destined for Christ and their subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in regards to the things that have now been announced to you through those who brought you good news by the Holy Spirit from heaven, things into which angels long to look that's kind of crazy to think that God withholds things from angels. They were like watching the movie. You know, they were watching. They're like, when, Jesus, when is season three going to drop? Like, what's going to happen here? Like, when is, what are you going to do next? Like, 
we have that anticipation. Stranger Things 4, anyone? No? No? Young people? Yeah. Okay. Uh, everyone else, sorry. It's a Netflix show. But I saw the preview, and I'm like, 2022? Is that January or December? I can't wait. Um, but no, angels long to look. They were watching, and they're still watching, seeing what God is doing through human history, through redemptive history. That's just uh, mind-blowing. The church today is privileged because the hopes of former ages have become tangible in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. I should attribute that. Aaron said that last night, so I, I stole that. That was great. We read how for generations and ages the people of God were longing to see what was to come, and yet they didn't. Most of the Old Testament is a testament of some perseverance, but often not, right? Often falling short and taking their eyes off the wheel, taking their eyes off of their living hope. And how often do the quote-unquote heroes of the, the faith, which I don't like that phrase, uh, are looking... They've got their eyes on Jesus, but then they look down, right? They look inward. They ask, why not me? Why, why, why God? Why isn't this happening? I think it's a push. They were waiting to see what was to come. They didn't know Jesus was coming. They were waiting for that Apple keynote to see what the next iPhone was like. Uh, but then, like, they go to the pre-sale, and then they just, like, drop. Um, and they, and they can't get it on the iPhone. But they knew. They heard the rumors. They read Mac rumors for weeks and months. Sorry for those of you who aren't Apple fans. Um, they waited and waited in line only to be told it won't be coming to, until after you're gone. We have such a privilege as a church on this side of Jesus to be on this side of faith. To have been given greater understanding of what God has been doing throughout redemptive history. It'd be, I, I, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be, you know, on the Old Testament side, not knowing, oh, that's coming. And yet there's more that we still haven't seen and are yet to understand. So before I wrap up, look, we're going to take a, video, uh, a look at a quick video, which I think will help us understand what Peter's saying, as well as where he's taking us in the rest of this letter. Let's roll the video. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die. But this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning, where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then 
partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a a clear distinction. So you said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible was all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space 
to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die. But that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. Um, the big line out of there, the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. And this is really what Peter is reminding us of our epic living hope that we have because of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the God-man, Jesus. And yeah, it's funny that we started in a garden and we're going to end in a city. Sorry for us who live in the rural and love it. Sorry, Eli. It's going to be urban is what it seems like in the end. But it'll be a good, beautiful, restored city and that we will be continuing to build and make beautiful things uh, to reflect our God's glory and character and goodness and so forth. So the restoration of all things through stewardship, through taking care, that is our job description. Stewardship, taking care of ourselves, our families, our communities, everything that God has given to us. And there's nothing we own, right? Uh, like this week I'm learning, even with my daughter, right? Uh, I have to hold her in open hands, right? Because I stewarded her, uh, but at the same time, at some point, there's a time where they go on and become their own. And similarly, all our things are that way. Everything we hold that God gives us is to be held with open hand. It can be given, but it can also be taken. But we're called to take care of it as long as he keeps it in our uh, hands. Now this, the restoration of all things through stewardship, that, that the, the story of the Bible is about heaven and earth being united, it comes directly in opposition. He kind of pointed it out to a common Christian focus, I would say, or even worldview. Uh, it saturates some Christendom in the West. If God wants me to die, then so be it, or Jesus died for me to go to heaven, or anything like that. And while there is some truth in those, those are not the focus. Yes, we will be with God, but that's not the focus. The focus, God coming to us. Uh, yes, if we die, God's in control. Yes, that's true. But that also doesn't mean that we negate stewardship, taking care of our lives, taking care of our bodies, taking care of ourselves. I don't think any of us are like, well, if God wants me to die, then yeah, I'm never going to lock the door or it's okay if I drink and drive or, or do anything of that sort or don't wear a winter coat in winter or things of that sort. I don't wear a seatbelt. No, we take care of our, our lives, right? We take care of our bodies. Why? Because our role is take care of what God has given to us. We don't be negligent or reckless with the things that God has placed in our lives. We steward. We take care. We help it grow. We help it garden. We garden our lives. We garden everything. We bring it from the seed that God has given to us, and we help it blossom into beautiful fruit. That's our role. And that, that is the way we individually do it. That's the way we collectively do it as a community and as families and as households. And that's how we do it as the kingdom of God globally. And that's how God's been doing it for generations. Think about that 
just 2,000 years ago, we started with about 11 people. And what, here we are now, over 2 billion people claiming to follow Jesus. Let's say only a quarter of them do. That's still a lot. Jesus said that likely most of the people who claim to follow me are really not following me. But still, that is a lot. That's a huge wave. He is the most famous person in all of human history. That is what the kingdom has done. And the kingdom have do has done things like start universities and help free slaves and help bring civil rights and start hospitals. We have done great things for both humanity, uh, for humanity and the earth as a whole. It's our job to continue that as God's people. No, I'm not saying a social gospel of social services, but those things do set up and make pathways and bridges to then bring life. Didn't mean to plug our name there. But sometimes we need to bridge that gap there before we can bring the life-giving message of Jesus. And that's where sometimes things like that service in those ways, in our own creative ways that God's gifted us and strengthened us. I want to read this. Um, there's this John Foreman song that came out this year, and I just love uh, the chorus. says, Oh, how I long for heaven in a place called earth, where every son and daughter will know their worth, where all the streets resound with thunderous joy. Oh, how I long for heaven in a place called earth. And then he says, Oh, the wars we haven't won. Oh, the songs we've left unsung. Oh, the dreams we haven't seen. And he keeps using this refrain, the borderline, at the end of every verse. And realizing that we're right on the border. We, we have a lot going on on our nation's southern border. And just picture that tension that a lot of where it's not black and white, there's a lot of mixed emotions and there's people's lives at stake, but then there's, there's laws and there's, there's all these different things going on. But at the borderline, that tension, the borderline of heaven and earth, of heaven and the consummation into earth, what that looks like. And I just love that. Oh, how I long for heaven in a place called earth. And I encourage us not too long to go to heaven, but to be a part of heaven coming here. The Lord's Prayer is praying, not take me to heaven, but may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not take me away. That's why I don't like that hymn, I'll fly away. Because it is so theologically incorrect. I'm sorry if you guys love it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I didn't know if you play it. But it's, it's, it's not in scripture. It's a nice idea. It kind of is Simpsons Christian theology. Where Homer goes up to see God and the tall thing. And that was how I learned what heaven and God was like when I was a kid. Because that's popular in, Christi in popular Christianity, but that's not the message and the story of the Bible. It is about heaven coming here, not us going to heaven. Heaven is rarely actually mentioned in the New Testament. Rarely. It is about heaven. When it is, it is about heaven coming here, the kingdom of God coming here. Last quote, Eugene Peterson. So why church? Why be a part of church? The short answer is because the Holy Spirit formed it to be a colony. We're a nation that started on colonies. What was that like? To be a colony of heaven in the country of death, in the country of America, in the country of this world. We're called to be heavenly colonies on this earth. 
an alternative culture. Church is the core element in the strategy of the Holy Spirit for providing human witness and physical presence to the Jesus-inaugurated kingdom of God in this world. It is not that kingdom complete, but it is a witness to that kingdom. Church is an appointed gathering of named people in particular places who practice a life of resurrection in a world in which death gets the biggest headlines. How much the news is saturated with darkness, right? But man, God is still alive. God is working. Eugene finishes, the practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life, life out of death, life that trumps death, life that is the last word, Jesus' life. So what's a practice or a couple practices from the way of Jesus that will aid us in seeking to keep our hope in Jesus this week? I ask this question a lot. I didn't make this my own. I took this from another pastor. But, you know, we're not supposed to just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We don't just believe in Jesus, but we follow him. And so practicing does not earn our salvation, but it lives into our salvation. So spiritual practices. Uh, a couple options. Meditation. I encourage you to spend some time this week meditating on scriptures that remind you of our living hope in Jesus. I, I picked one. Perhaps it's Psalm 18, too. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And if you're unfamiliar with how to, how to meditate on Scripture, we're not talking like some yoga stuff. Um, I'm talking literally just sitting on it, chewing on it. Maybe it's right. For me, it's sometimes writing the whole verse on my hand or even writing a part of it, a couple words, and I memorize that chunk couple hours of that day and i'm just thinking the whole day the lord is my rock the lord is my rock the lord is my rock and maybe i go out to place with boulders i just sit what does that what does that rock do and you just chew on it you you let the flavors you you, like if you're like me i'm a fast eater and i chew and i barely even like savor the flavors and it's actually really bad for me uh it causes some well personal digest yeah i shouldn't say that um savor the flavors like a filet mignon, let it sit in there. Or if, like, a, like a, a, a delicious espresso where you're just swishing the flavors around. Or maybe if you're like a fine liqueur or something like that where you're just letting it sit. And you're tasting the notes. You're trying to, to process it. And you let the taste buds of your soul take that in. Memorize them. Take them apart bit by bit. Chew on them. Um, pray them. Just sit with them. So I, I recommended Psalm 18 too. You could just take some of that First Peter passage. Uh, another option was fasting, and I'm going to I'm going to invite the band up as we close up. Uh, fasting is a way of temporarily starving our bodily desires or urges, and instead countering the urge by prayerfully asking God to fulfill that desire or to help us see that He fulfills that ba- desire far more then these temporary, momentary things can fulfill them. That's what fasting is. And sometimes it's a morning, sometimes it's food. Um, I, I, I recommend doing this conscious of your health, if you do it bod- like physical stuff like that food-wise. Um, but sometimes it's, man, it's a social media fast. And by the way, I totally re- I recommend your life be a Facebook fast. Because um, that thing's awful. Um, <laughs> Or maybe it's a social media fast. 
In particular, I know younger people, we identify, and, uh, and that's why I eventually got off it completely, because it becomes a source for me to find my meaning, my joy, but really it actually does the opposite. We know that it crushes it. Um, yeah, maybe it's fasting. Well, social media, TV, scrolling, filling the voids and silences of our lives, attempting to drown out the insecurities and lonelinesses or, or our sins or anything like that. That's, that's how we can fast. We can fast from these things, but seeking to be reminded that that void is not going to be filled by those things. No Stranger Things season four, however great it's going to be, is not going to fill a void in my heart as well as the living hope, the eternal lasting living hope of Jesus uh, that we have in him. So uh, as we move into a time of reflection and response, I, w- I want to encourage you with a few things. And can we put these up on the screen, Josh? The, the response stuff. Four things. Prayerfully reflect in this time. We've got a couple songs, so consider and think through what we talked about this morning. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you understanding. Uh, confess. Prayerfully confess. Bring before God any areas that you have fallen short this week. Ask the Spirit to convict you of sin. Perhaps you may need to ask forgiveness from a sister and brother in this place. Uh, and then give, sacrificially give so that the mission of Life Bridge goes forward. And ask the Spirit to give you generous hearts in response to the ways He so generously loves us. And we have two main ways to give. Can we put these up then? Uh, we have, we've got the baskets up front. And just a reminder, I don't know if everyone's aware of this, but we also take digital giving through Venmo, the app on your phone. You can do that on your phone or online, and all you do is search at LifeBridge CC, LifeBridge Christian Church. And uh, you can give that way as well. Um, and it's a safe, secure way to give. And then lastly, sing. Uh, sing out to God. Ask the Spirit of God to give you joy in Him. Sing to God, for He is worthy of our praise. Remember that our living hope is in Jesus. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.